0: Amen, we're bringing back the bangers. (laughs) Maybe it's a case of be careful what you wish for. So I think I mentioned Shout to the Lord a couple of weeks ago, perhaps in jest. Uh, But gee, it felt good. (laughs) Took me back to Menai Baptist Church Auditorium, 1994. Yes, Muzza was there. Darlene would be proud. Oh, how good, how good. Uh, Well, if um, I haven't met you before, my name's Dave, or if you're watching online during the week and catching up, um, it's 2022, here we are, um, nearly halfway through the year and we haven't been thrown back into a lockdown yet. That's wonderful news and hoping it doesn't happen again. (laughs) At the start of the year, I launched a um, a theme, a a vision, an inkling as to what God was saying to us as we um, move through this year, and I spoke out of 2 Samuel chapter 18, and it's the story of um, Absalom, Um, King David's son had been killed in battle. You remember the story? There's a young guy named Ahimaz, and Ahimaz's job was to run the news to the king um, of things that had happened on the battlefield. And Ahimaz, um, when he heard the news, he went to Joab, the commander of the army, and he said, Joab, I need to run to the king and tell him the news. And Joab said, not today. You can't run the news today. Another day you can run, but not today. And then Joab instead kind of went around Ahimaz's back and, and behind his job and gave it to an Ethiopian man to run the news. Meanwhile, Ahimaz was pretty upset, as you could imagine. This is my job, you know, how, how dare you boss go and give my job to someone else? It's my job to run the news, you got no idea. I love the king so much, it's my jo- I want to go and tell him what has happened, that victory is his. And it was from this kind of clarity of calling and depth of conviction that Ahimaaz went back to Joab and he said, sir, please let me run. Joab again questioned, why, why do you want to run? I've sent someone else. You're going to run? There's no reward for you. And Ahimez says to him, come what may, I will run. And off he went. And Ahim, we know the end of the story. or Perhaps you don't. Let me spoil it for you right now. Ahimez beat the Ethiopian man, a feat that you or I couldn't do, and he got to the king. It was this attitude of Ahimez that captured my imagination as I pondered the year ahead. What could God's church achieve with him if collectively we were awakened with renewed clarity of the value, worth, and identity we have in Christ and with an inexorable love for the King. What could we achieve together with God as He is building His church when we have a clear sense of who we are in Him and a clear conviction as to why He has placed us on this earth? And I remain confident that at the intersection of this kind of clarity and conviction, at the convergence of who we truly are in Christ and a passionate love for the King, we will find our stride. We will run like gracious gazelles across the African savannah with grace... And with flow, unbound by the limitations of what is possible and released into a future underwritten by the power of God to see more of heaven set loose on earth. To this end, we say, come what may, we will run, that we would see more of God's reality of heaven break into our everyday experience here on this planet of dust and water called Earth. So that's a catch up if you haven't been with us on where we're going this year. Come what, what may, we will run. Well, as I said earlier, and as you're well aware now, we are uh, two weeks away from the run to restore, which for me next weekend marks the anniversary of the last time I ran more than across the road to get some lunch. I don't think I've been on the trot since then, and I'm not going to be either. (laughs) I did it last year, it's Elisa's turn as my excuse this time around. Um, She can run and I'll just cook the sausages or something like this. Um, But one of my favorite parts of the Run to Restore is reaching the outposts um, that are set out at regular intervals, Uh, mostly um, manned by encouraging humans and much needed water along the way. In technical or at least historic terms, these outposts, these markers or indicators are called milestones. Uh, Although, since the metrication of Australia in 1971, we should be calling them kilometre stones, but nonetheless, the name has stuck. They're called milestones. If you don't like my Bible teaching, at least you get some good trivia gold, all right? In 1971, we went to metric, not imperial. You can take that one home. If that's the only thing you remember, though, from today, I'll be sorely disappointed. Milestones were an ancient invention that were usually stone pillars called obelisks, and they were often shaped something like this. Here is one I prepared earlier. And they were positioned along sides of roadways typically, and I bet you would never have guessed, set out one mile apart. Their function, just like the ones you'll see on the weekend uh, in the Run to store, is to help you know how far you've come in your journey. You know, you're plodding along and the sweat's building and you're getting a little bit tired and you get to that point, oh great, I've done a kilometre. Off you go, you get to the next one, oh two, three, four, you start getting a little bit encouraged, oh, I'm halfway there, five, I can turn around and get back and on the oh, way back there's six, there's seven and there's, there's an indication of how far we have come In our journey. In my experience, though, reaching a milestone marker is more than giving feedback on how far you've run. Reaching a milestone on a run, or even if you've been driving a long drive on a road trip and you see how many kilometers there are to go, it does something deeper than providing information on distance only. I mean, after all, the number is just a number. Oh, cool, one. I've reached one. Great, one is a number. I'm harvesting some information that I've gone one kilometre. Two, I'm harvesting information I've reached two kilometres. It's what the number does, though, and what it represents that has the greatest impact. It's as though the milestone has some kind of sacredness to it, a deeper impact on... Our reality in that moment than perhaps what we might first realize. And if I place myself mentally at one of those points, if I'm on, on a run and I get to kilometer number three, and if I was to stop at that number three marker rather than just running past and thinking, great, I'm at kilometre number three, if I was actually to pause and to think about what's happening in that moment, pause to feel what my body feels, to observe the state of my heart and my mind, I notice that reaching a milestone actually energises me. It reminds me, yes, of how far I've come and of the joy and also the lessons usually learnt through suffering on the road behind and ahead. I find in those moments that focus on the goal and even why I'm running comes into greater focus. If I had the faculties during the run, which I'm usually just consumed with staying alive, to process at this point what I'm feeling, I would be able to remind myself that I am in the midst of a process and no amount of rushing will be helpful in the end. You know, if this was milestone number three, and I got to it, and I stopped, and I, and I reflected on what do I feel at this moment, and I know that I'm here, and I'm tired, and there's more to go. I can remind myself at this milestone moment that I am part of a process, part of a journey, part of a run, part of an event, part of getting from A to B, part of movement, dynamic movement, that I'm in the midst of a process, and no amount of rushing, no amount of trying to force the issue is actually going to be helpful in the end. You know, as I stand by the milestone, you know, I can take a moment and take stock and realise that I have overcome things to make it to this point and I have what it takes to press on. You know, I could have that moment of, of reckoning at the milestone and go, I don't know if I've got what it takes to go further, but you know what, I've got this far. I've had the internal resources. I've had God on my side. Yes, I've had hardships, but you know what? I've got what it takes to move on. Now, as I stand at those, that milestone moment, pondering what this moment means, I can be reminded that I am not alone, that there are others running with me. Yeah, some are ahead down the track, and that's wonderful. I'd love to keep pace with them. But I'm also reminded there are others who are coming up from behind as well, who maybe don't know what I know or don't understand what I understand or haven't lived the life that I've lived or learned the lessons that I've learned, that I'm part of a bigger story, a bigger picture of what is going on. So I'm making the argument that milestones are not just moments of harvesting information, but grace-giving encounters that promote transformation. You know, we reach these moments in our life, And in our faith that have the real risk of us just harvesting information from them, of gathering data. You see, God doesn't just want us to do that. He wants to invite us into encounters that promote our transformation. Milestones are a sacred place, an invitation into a bigger story, a reminder that we are on a journey of grace in which we are being grown by God to reflect him and his kingdom to the world. So you might be wondering, what are these milestones? And perhaps you would have guessed from our wonderful guru, ninja, artwork creator, Greg, that there are 11 milestones ahead. This is an 11-week series, my friends. Buckle up. By no means is this a flawless and complete list of ways that we encounter God along our journey of faith, but these are certainly core practices and sacraments that our faith tradition and the historical church would hold as practices or milestones that punctuate the life of a follower of Jesus. And so over the next 11 weeks, we're going to be pulling into focus 11 milestones in the journey of faith and ask my favourite question, why? Why do we do what we do? Why do we gather? Why do we give? Why do we pray? Why do we worship? Why do we baptise? Why do we share communion? Why do we practice hospitality? Why do we serve? Why do we engage in mission and evangelism? Why do we study the Bible? And why do we do eldership? I mean, as is the case with a lot of life, we know what we do and how we do it, but seldom do we truly engage with the why. I mean, we know that we sing in church, that's a what. You know, we, what do you do when you go to church? We sing in church and we know that we do it by being led by an amazing team um, each week, generally with four songs and a chorus or tagline. <laughs> That's how we do it. But why? Why do we worship? You're going to have to come next week. Bretta's going to speak on that. Why do we do what we do? I believe that in taking the next 11 weeks to interact with the why of our what's and how's that your faith will be refreshed. That your love for Jesus and his church and your love for others will grow and I am confident that God by his grace will meet you where you're at and speak life and truth to you right where he needs to get it. Not where Dave needs to get it not where any of our other preaching team need to get truth, but where God needs to get truth and revelation to you right where you're at. So the goal is not that we would learn more as disciples of Christ, though important, but each week we gather would be a grace-giving encounter that promotes the transformation of our lives, a reminder that we are on a journey, A reminder that we are on a journey of grace in which we are being grown by God to reflect him and his kingdom to the world. So we are going to journey through those 11 milestones together and I hope that you look forward to it. Um, I am, because asking the question why often unlocks things that are unseen. This morning I'm going to speak, hopefully briefly, to why we gather But before we do, let me pray. Father, we thank you that this is an incredible journey of faith that you invite us into. Father, a a journey that begins with our brokenness and ends with our resurrection. Father, a journey that we know still as we go each day is imperfect. But Father, one that we know you meet us in every day by your grace to help us, to lead us, to guide us. And to change us more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray that over the next 11 weeks that that would be our experience, that we would be met by, gra- met by grace to be changed by you. So, Father, however you would like to do that, we welcome your presence and your Holy Spirit to be at work among your church in each of our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. It kind of feels like that was preach number one for the morning. It's always. A little bit interesting trying to launch a new series that's going to go for 11 weeks and also introduce our first why. And uh, let's have at it. Why do we gather? I mean, if I was to ask you right now, you might be lost for words, perhaps. Maybe you've got something ready to fire off. I mean, this is a topic that has been wrestled with for centuries as the church has been formed and has been reformed as the church in culture has been embraced and also been rejected as the church has been central in culture and now also peripheral in culture has been accepted and also marginalized and if we think about church right now in 2022 in a post-christian comfort convenience driven highly individualistic post-covid world The church is facing downward pressure, the likes that we haven't seen in generations. Perhaps the question of why do we gather is far more pertinent than we realise. It's certainly due more than what I can give it today, Um, so if you'd like any further reading on why we gather, just Google biblical ecclesiology. Good luck. Let's just pray and go and get coffee, hey? Let's just finish things. If I was to survey the room and ask, why is it that we gather on a Sunday for church? I am sure that we would get similar flavors from everybody, but it would be a very diverse meal. Depending on our upbringing, our experiences in church, the vision of church that we were brought up on, the picture that media um, and the news and culture have painted about the church, depending on how daggy or cool your primary school scripture teacher was, depending on your education, were you in a public school or a Christian school or other kind of education scenario. We all come to the table with broad experiences and different assumptions and understandings and knowledge that could point us toward the answer as to why we gather. I mean, do we gather to hear our favorite worship songs? I mean, if people knew Shout to the Lord was on this morning, I reckon the place would be packed. You know, is it just for encouragement that we gather on a Sunday, feeling like we're bringing a pretty drab week in with us, needing and knowing that we're going to get here and feel better about ourselves because someone has encouraged us? Is it to serve others, you know, is why we gather to um, serve one another? Is it to hear our favourite Bible stories or preacher? Is it to take communion? Is it to pray? Is it to eat morning tea and drink coffee together and back in the day to drink church strength cordial? Who remembers the McDonald's yellow jugs that you used to get in church that had them and you'd drink half, half strength cordial out of them? That was my growing up in church. Now, within our own Churches of Christ history, and perhaps you didn't even know that, that we are part of Churches of Christ, now known as the Fresh Hope Network. Within our own Church of Christ history, as articulated by three guys, John Hick, Johnny Melton, and Bobby Valentine, in their book, it's called A Gathered People, they write this, Churches of Christ have done more than to devote energy to the study of worship, especially corporate worship. We have agonized over it. Our birth as a religious tradition took place in liturgical acts of worship. From Barton W. Stone's communion festival at Cane Ridge in 1801 to Alexander Campbell's dispensing of his communion token at Glasgow in 1809, concern for proper worship has been a hallmark of our identity. Churches of Christ, despite all of our agonizing, have been more reactive than programmatic. We as people have rarely formulated a positive and foundational theology of worship. This has sometimes led us to embrace false dichotomies about worship. The most frequent false one is found in two common but opposing misunderstandings of assembly in churches of Christ. Now this is our history, you ready? That there were two models put forward. One is the five acts model and the other the edification model. And these guys in their book, A Gathered People, pit these two models of worship against each other. And in short, the five acts model believes that worship is five and only five acts of worship performed by the corporate assembly on the Lord's Day. It suggests that assembly is something we do for God through prescribed acts, being singing, preaching, praying, contributing, and communing. Anything less than that or anything more than that is a violation of the worship experience. That is one model that has been held. On the other hand, the edification model. And the edification model kind of reacts negatively against the five acts Model It suggests that the assembly is only for mutual encouragement and that all of life is worship. Assembly is something that we do for each other. Assembly is not worship in any special sense. No sacramental encounter with God since it is designed only for edification or encouragement would be the word for edification there.
1: So on one hand, the
0: five acts model promotes wonderful things. I mean, indeed, things which too aren't familiar, too unfamiliar to us and can most certainly be observed in the New Testament church. The problem, though, is that simply turning up once a week to do these five prescribed things within the portion of an hour and a half is not enough. Ticking the box on a Sunday, then living a self-serving life the rest of the week, misses the point entirely. And that is the criticism of the five acts model. That we could turn up and we could sing and pray and give and commune and hear the word and um, then go home and then we'll go and treat the poor with great injustice and be contributors to the heinous systems in our world. But it's all good because I did the five acts on Sunday. I mean, the edification model also has a bit of a tasty vibe. We gather for the locker room experience to, to rally each other, to sing the team song, to get fired up to slap each other on the back and tell each other we're awesome, everything is awesome. We'll leave that to the Pentecostals. I shouldn't say that. And then go and have a mad worship session alone, mowing the lawn, listening to Hillsong's latest album. Johnny, Johnny and Bobby say of both of these models, the five acts model and the edification model, both positions are reductionistic as they overstate their cases. Scripture in both testaments affirms that all of life is to be lived out before God as worship. Everything we do should honor the God of glory. Yet the assembly, the gathering of God's people, what you and I do each and every week, well, I do it. Sometimes you do it every two weeks and every three weeks. And that is completely fine. I'll let the Lord speak to you accordingly. But they say that what we do each and every Sunday on the day of assembly, on the Lord's day, is a sacramental encounter with God. It is an edifying, enriching mediation and enjoyment of the gracious presence of the triune God. That this is a milestone moment in our lives. It's not a transactional information data gathering moment where we walk into church to take assessment of the data oh, I liked that song, or I didn't like that, or I liked what they said, I didn't like that, the coffee was this, the coffee was that. It's not about harvesting information, but whenever we gather, we gather in a milestone moment where the Lord leads us into a place of transformation, where we take stock of who we are and whose we are and how great he is, and we are invited into the enjoyment of the gracious presence of the triune God. I mean, let this sink in. As we have sung songs and as we will sing again, I mean, indeed, as we sit right here in this very moment, with the very next breath that you are about to draw, this is a sacred moment gathered in the very presence of God who takes great delight in you and the invitation for us to take great delight in him we are not just here to tick a box of doing church nor just to feel great that we're not alone as we gather the triune god creator of heaven and earth present as father spirit son and as father son and holy spirit are graciously present to enjoy us and be in Joyed. we gather because God is here Emmanuel God with us the Lord loves to meet you and I here he's not confined by this building but he loves it when we're here It brings him delight when his gathered, called out ones join together in his presence. Throughout Scripture, God has met with his gathered people in Exodus, Exodus 19 to 24. Five entire chapters is the account of Israel gathered at Mount Sinai, where God met with Moses and delivered the commandments. It says in Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, recalling their leading out from Pharaoh's oppressive regime into the promised land and how they were led through the desert and they got to the Red Sea and the waters opened and then they closed and, and killed all the chariots and the horsemen and all the rest of it and they went on their way. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself." Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I mean, it is this moment, which is recalled in Deuteronomy 4.10, how on that day it says, you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, the Lord said to me, gather The people to me, gather the people to me, and may I that I may let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth, and that they may teach their children so. I mean, time and time again, the resounding call of God to Moses was to gather the assembly, to bring the congregation together. I mean, David in the Psalms writes repeatedly. Drawing together, about drawing together the great congregation. I mean, these words, as we see them in the Old Testament, gather, or called out ones, or assembly, or congregation. They all come from a Greek word called ecclesia, or ekklesia was how they would pronounce it, uh, which is the word found in the New Testament for, you guessed it, church. To gather together. To be a congregation, to be assembly in the Old Testament is what we understand in the New Testament to be called church. A called out assembly. People who are gathered to God. You know, this is the language used at the birth of the church in Acts 2. When the Holy Spirit had been poured out at Pentecost on who? The Ekklesia, Those who were gathered they were gathered together in the same place we read in Acts 2, one in Acts chapter 2 verse 6, there were devout men from every nation and at the sound as in the sound of the holy spirit being poured out a great ekklesia came together, a great gathering came together. At this time Peter preaches a red hot spirit-filled sermon declaring the gospel to all in earshot and concludes by asking, "What then shall we do?" If here we are as a gathered people, born by the Holy Spirit in this moment, and the church at that time was spilling out onto the streets, you know, power came upon them. and Peter preached the word, preached the gospel, and 3,000 added to the number that day. The church was overflowing and spilling, and then they asked, what shall we do of all of this? What shall we do with the beginnings of this gathering called church? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord God calls to himself, ecclesia, everyone who the Lord gathers and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourselves from this crooked generation so that those who received his word were baptized and were added to that day about three thousand souls and the church was born and Peter carries on and oh, sorry Luke carries on and writes of what happened And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the gathering of God's people. They devoted themselves to the assembly. They devoted themselves to the Lord on the Lord's day. They devoted themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, ekklesia, assembled, together, had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. I mean, this would have been the foundation of the five acts model. You know, they're all listed within here. But we need to get the right things in the right order. That we don't gather to serve those things. We gather to meet with God. And from that day to this, God has been found in the gathering of his people. Why? I mean, is it because nor he or they had anything better to do? I mean, I love you all lots, but I could think of a lot of other places that I could spend my Sunday mornings. And perhaps you probably could too. It wasn't because of God didn't have anything better to do or because the church didn't have other things to go on within their lives. It was because the Ecclesia, the gathering of his people, as they and as we devote ourselves to the hearing of God's word, to building a healthy and safe church community to taking communion, to praying together, to sharing and giving, seeking justice for the poor and the welcoming of the stranger and the outsider is, as John, John and Bobby wrote in their book, a sacramental encounter with God. An edifying, enriching mediation and enjoyment of the gracious presence of the triune God. Now, when we meet, we breathe deeply of the presence of God. It's no wonder that the writer of the Hebrews was so adamant in reminding those who wanted to skip church when the pressure was on, when doubt was high and when the cost was rising. In the letter to the Hebrews was this, a reminder, a calling back to, in the midst of rising pressure and persecution among the church in Jerusalem in that day. The writer of Hebrews writes to convince people again, don't go back to the old way. Don't don't go back there. Jesus is the answer. He is the high priest. He is the one who makes the way. Our salvation is sure and secure in him. He's an anchor for our soul. And by the way, he would say, or they would say, or she would say, or whoever the writer of Hebrews is, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we can stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now this verse in Hebrews can easily be, be weaponized by insecure leaders who want to build big things. And in my study this week, I listened to podcasts and I read essays and I read blog posts and I saw that very thing and it broke my heart. That even coming out of COVID, where people have been tucked away at home, uh, isolating, who have been following directives from health and government for the safety of uh, our community and the well-being of our neighbours and our families, holding this verse over their churches as a way to make them be there. God's vision for his church is so much more than feeding the pride of people who want to build big things. In fact, that's not his vision at all, and it never, ever has been. See, gathering is not about us. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus wanting to meet with us. It is about Jesus wanting to enjoy us and us enjoy him. It is about being Jesus being worshipped as the one true king. It is about Jesus transforming and renovating our lives. It is about showing the world what heaven is like. I mean, there's a whole preach. There's another 11 weeks just on that alone. That who we are and what we do and how we gather and why we do it is a visible representation of what heaven is like on earth to a world that is watching What an incredible vision that calls us to love one another in radical ways, to love our world with generosity and compassion and with mercy, a way that we would lift up and we would defeat the God of self by lifting up the name of Jesus week after week after week after week, that the testimony to our world is we do not live for ourselves, for I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, lives in us it's not about us it's about being a community of called out ones empowered by the spirit to live differently i'll wrap up in just a moment and the promise is that when we gather in his name emmanuel is with his people where two or three are gathered there i am in the midst And when I open the scriptures, when I flip open to the Gospels, and I see what happens when Emmanuel enters the room. Where he is, there is healing. And where he is, there is freedom. Where he is, there is peace. Where he is, there is hope. Where he is, there is a new start. Where he is, blind eyes see. Where he is, lame legs begin to walk. Where he is, death is reversed and new life is found. May we never diminish the presence of God in our gatherings by placing us or our needs, or our wants, or our priorities, or the fact that we're a really cool community who love each other deeply first. This gathering on the Lord's Day, the day of assembly, as what our heritage would call it, born out of the scriptures, the day of assembly is a sacred place. This is a place where God meets with us. His called out ones. So why do we gather? And I'll invite the band to come up. Why do we gather? Yeah, we sing songs and they're wonderful. And yeah, we pray together and we get updates on what's happening around the world. And we give and we do all of the things that we do. But Why? And perhaps it's less profound than what you would have hoped to have heard. Or perhaps it's more profound than you could have ever imagined. That we gather because God is here. It is a mystery. It is bewildering. It is, also, it is offensive that God would choose to be found among us. I'll finish with this. I believe that we are in a time of history where we have an opportunity to reframe the power and the place of God's church to a world that is watching. An opportunity that will require us to let go of human-centred understanding of being together and embrace a God-centred understanding that coming together on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, the Day of Assembly is a divine act of grace through which God encounters his people in order to transform them into his image through the presence of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as I wrote that this week, I then began asking a question. I found myself asking this week, and I would ask it of you, and perhaps take this away to ruminate on and to consider. What in me and how I speak about God's church needs to change... To reflect that this is far more than a beautiful community, which it is, but that it is in fact a place in which God meets us here to transform our lives. What needs to change in me? To truly understand and embrace that truth that God is here, that He loves to meet with His people, that He takes great joy and wants to be enjoyed. What then does that do in me? What, what do I need to change in the way I speak, the way I think, the way I act, the way I orient, the way I prioritize? What in me needs to change? And let me just leave that question with you. What in you needs to change to fully appreciate and to live into the truth and the reality that when we gather as God's called out community that has done so since Mount Sinai, this very moment right now that god is here and that is why we gather